This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. Increasing numbers of nurse practitioners are working internationally, responding to disasters and outbreaks of diseases, such as the recent cholera epidemics in Haiti, Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, Niger, Pakistan, and many other countries. In 2009, over 200,000 cases of cholera were reported by the World Health Organization worldwide, with nearly 5,000 associated deaths in 45 different countries. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host, and with me today is nurse practitioner Mary Anna McLassen, who just returned from working for three months in Nigeria for Doctors Without Borders, helping with the cholera epidemic there. Hello, Mariana. Welcome to Reach MD. Hello, Mimi. What inspired you to do this type of work? I mean, it's a dramatic change from working in the United States. Well, for me, it's always been my overarching desire to help the underserved. It's really what drove me to go to nursing school in the first place and then on to my nurse practitioner training. It's always been present, but I think what prompted me in this last year to really make a push to make this dream a reality was that 10 years had passed since I first finished nursing school, and I realized that you finish one program, you have more debt, you have to get experience, then you get more education and more debt. And before I knew it, I had woken up, and it was 10 years later, and I had completely gotten away from my original goal. Um, but I think for me, it's always been a desire to really do something dramatic to make a difference in the underserved around the world. How did you prepare yourself for this kind of work? I think for me, each job I've taken over the past five to ten years has had this as an end goal. So as I've taken career choices, I've continually tried to take positions that allow me to work with underserved individuals. I've taken foreign languages as I've gone. And then this year, I had to make some pretty dramatic life decisions, selling a home, choosing career paths and jobs that would allow me to have some flexibility So it really did take quite a bit of effort to be able to carve three months out of my life and my career to set aside for this. Why did you choose to work with Doctors Without Borders? Well, I think for me, I did a lot of research of different nonprofit organizations and non-governmental groups around the world. And Doctors Without Borders really stood out to me as, in my mind, the best of the best. There are plenty of organizations doing phenomenal work around the world, but the core charter and the core goals of Doctors Without Borders really matches with a lot of my ideals and a lot of, a lot of the principles that we as nurse practitioners hold to of treating everyone equally and providing the best care that is possible, even in very difficult situations. And I really was able to buy into a lot of their ideals. What's the process for becoming a volunteer with this organization, Mariana? They are actually quite selective. A lot of people have been astonished at the waiting period and the length that they go to to ensure that they have the best volunteers possible. It was about a seven- to nine-month process between you know, my first application, a couple months later, an interview. A few months after that, I was after a thorough background check and a very extensive reference check I was able to go to an orientation in New York City where their headquarters are in the United States. After that week-long orientation, they put me into what they call a candidate pool. At this point, they still make no promises that at any point I will be offered an assignment. So it's kind of a matter of waiting. 
I felt fairly confident that with some of my skills and my desire to go that they would call me for an assignment, but there were no promises. But luckily, they eventually did call me. How much notice, Mariana, were you given before leaving on your assignment? (laughs) About three days. It's a caller emergency, so they got a call from a doctor in the field in Nigeria on a Sunday. They called Paris and said, you know, the epidemiological data is suggesting that we are beginning an epidemic at this point. They contacted Paris. Paris contacted New York. By Monday afternoon, they had contacted me with the preliminary discussion. Tuesday, they secured my flight, and I needed to be in New York by Thursday night so I could continue my journey to Nigeria the following day. What did they tell you in advance about what you'd be dealing with when you arrived there? They give you as much information as they can based on the information they're getting directly from the field. One of the unique things about this organization is that the needs are generated from the field. So the epidemiologist and the physician and the nurses on the field say we need 10 international volunteers. And they give them as much information as possible, but essentially I was given a small 100-page booklet about cholera treatment. We call it the cholera treatment guideline. I was told I would be working in a city of about 500,000 people and that they expected between 10 and 20,000 cases as a best-case scenario. And other than that, I just began reading that cholera treatment guideline on the plane, and I didn't really know what else to expect, so it was a little bit overwhelming. What were the conditions like when you arrived in Nigeria? Well, oddly, when I arrived, I remember showing up at the cholera treatment hospital. I was the first international volunteer on the ground. And I remember after all of this rushing and rushing for two to five days to get from my home in Phoenix to New York all the way to Nigeria, I remember looking around at this tent hospital that had been set up, and my first thought was, what was the rush? They've already done all of the work. I don't know why they needed me to come so quickly. You know, I was very puzzled. That was the voice of inexperience. I had no (laughs) idea how much work was headed our way. One of the strengths of Doctors Without Borders is the logistical side of things. They have teams of logisticians who are able to, in very short order, create an entire tent hospital. We saw that in action after the earthquake in Haiti about a year ago. Doctors Without Borders was already on the ground, but they had supplies available to set up a hospital within 24 to 48 hours. So by the time I arrived, at first glance, there wasn't a lot of work to do. Unfortunately, we had plenty of work to do, so that was a little bit of inexperience on my part, but happily there was plenty of work. (laughs) What was your role when you first arrived? Well, it was my first assignment with Doctors Without Borders, and you know, they do their best to screen candidates very, very carefully. But you really don't know how people are going to react on their first mission. So they try to start people off in very basic roles with the understanding that the number one quality they look for is flexibility. So I was told I would be working as a nurse. They don't have a defined role for nurse practitioners, obviously, because that's not something we see internationally at this point. So I was told I would just be a nurse. So my first job was being one of just a handful of medical staff. We were frantically caring for, at times, 150 to 200 patients among three to four nurses. So the first week was just calming down the situation. About a week later, 
I apparently showed a little bit of strength, and they promoted me to nurse supervisor. And about a week after that, I was promoted to nurse manager. That allowed me, in the middle of the peak of the epidemic, to pull from all of my skills from my nursing and my nurse practitioner experience and identify that we needed a lot more nurses very quickly. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with Mariana McGlasson, who just returned from working three months in Nigeria for Doctors Without Borders, helping manage the cholera epidemic there. So you were just describing how your role evolved there and how many weeks on the job when you were promoted to manager? I had been there about two weeks. It seemed like four to five months at that time. We were working 16, sometimes 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Time moves very, very slowly. At two weeks into the epidemic, we identified we needed a lot more leadership. And then I was given permission to recruit, hire, train, and manage up to 165 medical staff. It's a phenomenal project to be able to provide a cholera treatment program. At the peak of the epidemic, I was managing 165, 180 people. So let's just understand some of the basics. What is cholera? How is it spread? And what are the symptoms, Mariana? Cholera is a bacterial infection that is spread through fecal-oral transmission, primarily in dirty water. In these types of settings, you see cholera epidemics dominate in settings like refugee camps. We're experiencing cholera epidemic right now in Haiti, more effects of the earthquake that we saw a year ago, of people living in very close conditions. One infected individual can infect hundreds or thousands of people in these tight situations. One gram of cholera-infected stool can infect 10 people, and each patient is losing 6, 10, 15 liters of bodily fluids within 12 to 24 hours. It's an unbelievable amount of fluid loss, and all of these fluids are obviously infected with the bacteria. It gets into the water sources, the food sources, hand-to-hand transmission. It's very, very contagious. Why is cholera so lethal, and what is the mortality rate? That's a very good question. In sort of the worst-case scenario, refugee camps, very tightly packed cities, slums, where people are living very close together, if a cholera epidemic hits, you can see anywhere from 30, 40, even 50% mortality rate. If you have an effective cholera treatment intervention in an emergency setting like we did in Nigeria and like they're doing in Haiti, the goal is to keep the mortality rate around 1% or 2%. We were successful with that in Nigeria. Doctors Without Borders has really perfected the intervention of cholera as best as possible, but it is phenomenally infectious and lethal. It essentially draws all of the bodily fluids into the colon lumen and into the GI tract, and the stool is classified as a watery rice water stool, and it really does look like water, and it sounds like water as it comes out of the body. So walk us through a cholera treatment center. Help us visualize what it was that you were dealing with every day. Okay, well, keep in mind we're working in primarily countries where they often have unreliable electricity, which then translates to unreliable light. Because of the infectious nature of the disease, we have to set up camps on the periphery of other hospitals or in parts of town where we can protect the community from the infection. 
We set up a very strict isolation. Doctors Without Borders, the model is that we put plastic sheeting, which is about six feet high, around the periphery of the camp. And then we set up tents. Our camp, for example, we had to be ready for about 200 patients at any time. So I think at the largest point, our camp had about seven or eight tents set up. We build cots that are a simple wooden frame. It's about 12 inches off the ground. And we stretch plastic sheeting across these cots to make them easier to clean and very quick to make. You can construct 20 or 30 beds in one day, very simple. And then in the middle of the plastic sheeting on the cot, they cut a hole that's maybe four to six inches in diameter, and that's where the patient lays their bottom. Underneath the cot, we have one bucket to catch the stool, and then to the side of the cot, we have another bucket for the vomit. Uh, These patients are far too ill and weak and often unconscious to be able to get up and take care of their toileting needs. So we call these cholera cots. And it's not really a pretty picture when you walk into a very dimly lit, often very hot and humid place. And you'll see wall to wall, you'll have you know, 50, 60, 80 patients in one big tent or one big room, cot by cot by cot. It's a little overwhelming, to be honest, when you first walk through a cholera treatment center. Um, patients are so so very close to the brink of death, and they wax and wane in this state sort of between life and death for two to three days before they really come back. What are your future plans, Mariana, and will you continue working with Doctors Without Borders? I would be honored and privileged to work with them again. At this point, I am on a standby list. I'm working here in Phoenix, Arizona. I have found a wonderful employer that will allow me four or five months off each year to do this type of volunteer work. I was just really pleased to find somebody who was able and willing to do that. So I will be hopefully traveling again in the epidemic season, as they call it in the international community. Epidemic season usually starts in the spring or summer. It'll be my hope, you know, not that we ever hope for an epidemic, but the unfortunate reality is that most of the world bounces from epidemic to epidemic to epidemic, and we're just trying to be available to help. Well, thank you very much, Mariana McGlasson, for making such a difference in the world, and I wish you the best of luck in your career. Thank you so much for having me, Mimi. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.